0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in the Book of Lamentations. This is the Big Book cover to cover and we are going through one book of the Bible each Sunday, something I have never done and I am loving it. I am learning a lot and I hope you are as well. Um, This has been a fun week. We're in studio this week, and we interviewed uh, Dr. Christopher J. H. Wright, Ph.D. Cambridge slouch kind of guy. And uh, he has written a number of commentaries, but one in particular on Lamentations. And Hannah and I were recording him with our mouth hanging open. It was so fascinating. So um, reading his commentary the past few weeks, it's been a delight. And then you talk to the man. It's just, I don't know, that's my world. I like that kind of stuff. I'm weird. Uh, Let's start out with some big overview observations. Dr. Charlie Dyer writes in his commentary, the book of Lamentations is a mournful postscript to the book of Jeremiah. Using five dirges or funeral laments, the author grieved over the fate of Jerusalem because of her sin. Yet the book contains more than just a backward glance at a vindicated prophet. He quotes Swindoll here, "...it is a mute reminder that sin in spite of all its allurement and excitement. And just stop for a second. Sin is alluring and exciting. Sin is pleasing for the moment. In spite of all its allurement and excitement, carries with it the heavy weight of sorrow, grief, misery, barrenness, and pain. It is the other side, he writes, of the coin of eat, drink, and be merry. Dyer continues, lamentation both mourns, the fall of the city, and offers reproof, instruction, and hope to its survivors. In, in thinking about a book like this, and if you've not read it, this, this will be... Uh, it's a hard book, and if you have read it, you know some of the atrocities. I mean, I mean mothers eating their young. This is how bad things get at this, in chapter of Israel's story. But I don't know analogous because our Western minds are so... Uh, we're bad at history, most of us, and certainly global history... And uh, we look at things very myopically, but if you remember 9-11, if you remember Pearl Harbor, if you're old enough to remember Pearl Harbor or Kennedy's assassination, there was something that happened that rocked the nation. Uh, My oldest daughter was at a public school in Fairfax, Virginia, when 9-11 occurred. And uh, um, we were living uh, six miles from the Pentagon where the church where we served. And uh, she came home that day. We were all devastated. It was a long day. You perhaps remember it as well. But she said, Dad, prayer came back to the public school today, and nobody complained. Because when something that traumatic happens, uh, political correctness and so forth is put on pause for a bit. Not for long, but for a bit. I still don't think the gravity of 9-11 is anything like what happened to the temple complex in Jerusalem. But we don't have anything analogous. We, we've not been down those roads or through those things. If you, there's a few of you that might have lived, Dick, you might have been during World War II. Um, there are a number of us here, a few of us. But that generation, the greatest generation, and in, in goodness me, oh my, we are grateful to them, and we need another great generation to reclaim what they gave us. But that's, that's another subject. But um, World War II, perhaps, uh, if you know Gentry Farms, if you've not talked to him about the liberation of Dachau, it's, it's, you need to do that when you go to Gentry Farms next time. He was a 19-year-old boy who liberated Dachau. And his story will rock your world. But we don't have those experiences in the last 20 years. I mean, 9-11 set aside, it put a pause on us. It ruined our travel experience. We all hate TSA. But the gravity of losing... The White House, the old executive building, let's say Wall Street in total, let's say all of the financial markets in New York, let's say Chicago is taken out, L.A. and the Art District is taken out, Dallas for communications is taken out. All these cities are taken out at once, and they're not rebuilt for 100 years. That still doesn't come close to the gravity of the spiritual trauma of what happened to God's people, where the place where he put his name is destroyed by the Babylonians. And again, we're bad at history, and I'm not trying to shame you. It's just unfortunate we don't educate ourselves well. But this is the backdrop of this book. The first word in the Hebrew text literally is how with a question mark. How could this be? How could this happen? And this is Jeremiah writing after this has occurred. Um, We've talked about it. I won't detail it. The rabbinic traditions, how these Hebrew words, uh, and then we've got the so-called Septuagint, which is a corpus of literature, the Vulgate, which is Latin, and how these words go along in history and become names. And I won't tell you the the whole story, but it becomes the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and that's more like what your Bible has in front of it, unless you use a Jerusalem Bible or you looked at other things. Um, It is constructed around these dirges, these funeral dirges, It is a remarkable piece of literature. To give you a little bit of a time stamp, if you're a note taker, 2 Kings 25 verse 9, He, being Nebuchadnezzar, he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain, and the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And if you've not yet been to Israel, it is God's will for you to go. And you will see in the temple complex that Herod built, these walls that have come down. And it's hard for us to understand, but when you put fire against a stone wall, it will eventually breach. And they breached the walls and destroyed the temple complex. 588 to 586. Remember, we're going backwards in BC. 588 to 586, two years. These timestamps are very accurate. 587 is a technical fall, but 588 to 586 is the time we're looking at. So, this is, you remember, I'm not talking about days so much as time spans. This is a two-year time span he's writing about. To keep, it helps me. I hope it helps you. Um, At the end of the siege, uh, they take all of the accoutrements of the temple complex, either take them back to Babylon and repurpose them, or they keep them as trophies. And that's another story for another time. But all the things that were prescribed in the Law of Moses, the lavers, the doors, the hinges, anything that was gold of value, it's all plundered. That's what you do when you destroy an enemy city. Jeremiah is an eyewitness of this. In both Jeremiah 39, the chapter, and 52, the chapters, uh, talk about his seeing this happening. So this is the lament. Uh, Dyer points out something that, frankly, I had missed, I'm sure. I studied it in seminary, but I can't prove it. Uh, That Deuteronomy 28 is a parallel to the book of Lamentations. And for you BSF precepts, uh, community Bible study, Bible nerds, this is a great devotion for you to do sometime in the near future. Take Deuteronomy 28 and print out a, a printout of, of a, a Lamentations, and if you want to cheat, go online and search Lamentations. In Deuteron- it's, a, it's a rabbit hole. It's amazing. And uh, I would say conservative, evangelical, fundamental Bible believers will say, this is a total fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. I have probably studied that. I can't prove it. But I learned it again, because morning by morning, New verses I read. Y'all don't know that by now. I love that joke. Lamentations is a brief book, but it's the most amazing piece of structure and literature uh, perhaps in the Bible. Now, we talk about a lot of these tools, and I want to show you a slide of a chiasm. Remember AA prime, B B prime, C prime, D D prime? The middle is the point of the chiastic structure. So for the whole book of Lamentations is a chiasm. And so you can see what he's done here in this very simple, almost simplistic way of showing it. And the point is what I want to go to. If it's A prime, B, A, A prime, the middle one, let's just call it D, that's the point of the book. And it's framed by these chiastic devices. And so if you know anything about Lamentations, you know about chapter 3. And that, of course, lands in the middle, Jeremiah's response. The book is poetic. It's chock full of acrostics. Remember, acrostics are using the first letter, in this case, of the Hebrew alphabet, and you use a Hebrew word to start that sentence. Um, So what they did in this book, what Jeremiah did, is unprecedented because he went to double acrostics and even triple acrostics. Now, because we all can't sight-read Hebrew, it's impossible to see this. And even though I can study with Hebrew, I have to have the text out, and I have to take care to see that all the uh, first words start with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. So uh, some attempts have been done. David Slabot did a translation. Now this is at best a paraphrase, but I want you to see it because the English Western eye and ear and mind can't grapple with the Hebrew very well. So let's show the, this, what, what he did in this translation. And what he does, he used English words... To uh, pull those in, so you see at the top, afflicted, abused, against, the A's, then B, broken, a bones broken, bitterness banished. C, chained, crying for help, crooked. It's crooked. So again, it's a paraphrased attempt, but it just gives you an idea that makes sense. So in Hebrew, they, those words, those aren't the words, but that's as close as he could get in a paraphrase. Make sense? So this book is is rich in structure for those of you who are songwriters and I like poetry. This is an astonishing book. And then there's some tripwires in it, like chapter 5 doesn't fit into the structure. And there are reasons for that, but this gets down into pretty deep detail, so I will just stop with that. So why did he do it this way? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit is inspiring Jeremiah to craft this poem after the longest, second longest Old Testament book, Psalms being the longest piece of literature then Jeremiah being the second longest piece of literature. Now he puts a postscript on it, if you will. And why does he write it with such rich poetry and structure? Well, I mean, I can't be bulldogmatic, but I think one reason, A to Z, is what? It's easy to teach and easy to remember. Another reason that I read this week, and I again, it was new to me, uh, we call it a Hebraism. Um, and we, we talk about from New York to L.A., What are we talking about? From one side of the country uh, to another. We say from A to Z. Perhaps the author is saying uh, all the sins you did from A to Z. That's how egregious the sin condition was before God did what he said he was going to do when he fulfilled his promise to judge them for their sins and their lack of repentance. Again, we've talked about Wilkinson and Boa again and again. This series, let me read from their introduction, Lamentations, perhaps, is the saddest book in the Old Testament. It is penned by the mourning prophet Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem in the five dirges of death. Jeremiah expresses the horror and the helplessness of seeing Jews, the Jews proudest city, reduced to rubble. Defeat, slaughter, and ruination, the horrors so long promised and so frequently ignored. That catches me. So long promised and so frequently ignored. I know you're probably a lot better Christian than me. How much do we know and how much do we ignore? When you and I choose to sin, we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. We're no different. They continue, um, and yet even as the prophet's heart breaks, he pauses to proclaim a ringing testimony of deep faith in the goodness and mercy of God. Though the present is bleak with judgment, the future sparkles with the promise of renewal and restoration. And indeed, verse 23 of chapter 3, great is thy faithfulness, which of course is where that hymn is pulled from, which why most people know uh, Lamentations, if they know it at all. Now the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians Um, left not only a devastated city of Jerusalem, but it was a support center. So again, if you lose Washington, D.C., and Wall Street, and Chicago, if you lose our major city infrastructure, there's nothing left. And so these people are left without a home, without political protection, without a way of living, without incomes, without any, all this is gone. So there's no, if an EMP went off all across our major grids, none of your technology would work. Isn't it interesting when uh, Twitter or Facebook or one of these companies has an outage? People get outraged. I mean, they go crazy. The Internet's down. Wait till we have a real bona fide EMP. I hope you have a CB radio somewhere or a shortwave radio somewhere or just go talk to your neighbor in coffee. Well, the poet introduces two primary characters in the book, and one of them is himself as a narrator, and the other one is Zion, which um, I love Christopher Wright. He calls her uh, Lady Zion or Queen Zion, which I had not heard that or read it before except his commentary. And so it's juxtaposed. Um, Sometimes it's the queen, sometimes the daughter of Zion, and so he likes this Lady Zion. In addition to those who speak in the poem, uh, there are casts of people that have a role in this story. And uh, they include the enemies who mock and taunt them. They include the priests, prophets, elders, all whom failed. When the religious leaders fail, it's just a domino effect. Some of you have followed the Methodist church's recent separation between those who support a very liberal agendas and those who do not. And I found it striking that, yet again, the liberals always get the buildings. Here's some money, go away. The liberals always get the buildings. That's why some of the most beautiful uh, churches are empty theologically and maybe even of people. Um, The book has some horrific records of young girls who are raped and humiliated, of mothers, as I mentioned, who eat their own children. Uh, This is the worst of the worst. And perhaps most intriguing to readers, there's never one word from God. We speak of Esther not talking about God, but in Lamentations, God does not speak. Now, there's some veiled nuances, but he does not speak in the work. Perhaps heaven is silent for good reason. Again, excerpts from a number of contributors. One, heaven is silent, which does not necessarily mean heaven is deaf or blind. We shall consider later what Kathleen O'Connor called, quote, the power of the missing voice. It's so bad, the judgment's so severe, and not only that, God is silent. You're going to sit for a while in what's happened. And tragically, because we don't understand history, most of these people will not live to see restoration. They will die in this situation. Well, on that cheery note, I love the book of Lamentations. Let's take a look at some of the passages First of all, notice the no comfort theme in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And let me ask you to read along with me from the screen. Lamentations chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. There's no comfort. Chapter 1, verse 5, God's judgment is unmistakable. Read with me chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 1, verse 12. 1, verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief." Don't miss that. The Lord has caused her grief. The attribution is that God brought this judgment on them. Continue with me. "...because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary." And verse 12, continuing the theme of God's judgment, It is nothing to all you who pass this way. Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Attribution to God brought this. Lamentations chapter 2 is very difficult to read. Um, I'm going to read one verse, but uh, I'm going to show you one verse on the screen, but I'm going to read through some of these. And I want you to hear the the divine pronoun, which sidebar, sidebar, um, the divine pronoun, he, you, I, me, my, when it speaks of God, uh, now they hang on to it with I because I has to be capital. Most of your English Bibles have dropped the divine pronoun. Irritates me no end. Because sometimes I don't know who the reference is. Uh, In Psalms and Proverbs, good luck, you're going to have to figure it out. Even i got to stop and go, is the reference to the antecedent or what's coming before? Is it about God? Is it about some fictitious person? Is it about a specific person? So I'm really unhappy with Bible translators on this, um, one of my peeves. But um, when I read the Bible, uh, one of the things I do when I come to the divine pronoun is I always circle it. I just do it in pen, light pencil because my brain can see that when I go back. And this book especially, it's stark how prominent God is the agency here. Let me just read verse 5. The Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of His anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered His footstool. In the day of His anger, the Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath, He has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah, he has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand. What an image. The right hand of God is the omnipotent power where Jesus sits, and he's taking it away. I'm out of here. Your sin has become so odious, I can't do it anymore, and I'm going to have Babylon destroy you for it. Um, verse 4, he has bent his bow like the enemy. He has set his right. You get the idea. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all his palaces. He has destroyed his strongholds and multiplied the daughter of Judah. Mourning and Mourning. So this lament is heavy. It implicates their sin. It's, they knew it was happening. They knew it was coming. They didn't believe. They preferred to stay in their sin and ignore God's word because, after all, it had been a long time. God evidently isn't going to judge. He's not going to fulfill His word. Contrary, contrary. He's going to do what He said He was going to do. In chapter 3, the implications are very personal. And let me read from chapter 3. Again, you can follow in your Bible. This is not on the screen. Um, But this is the beginning of the turning point. And you'll notice we're going to go from he to I in this section. I am the man, Jeremiah writes, who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely, Surely against me, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. And you'll see the messianic nuances in here, right? He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places, he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me up so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. What a great picture. Dragging this thing around. I can't get away from it. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my path crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion. Do we think of God in these terms? You know, some of us were raised Catholic, and I don't know about your parish or diocese or where you were, but there was a lot of hammer theology the way I grew up Catholic. Maybe some of you had similar backgrounds in your churches that, that were legalistic and hard and heavy and God's judging you and shaming you. And, and what a horrible way to live. Those of us who came from uh, difficult homes, if we had a shaming, heavy-handed parent, that, that messes up our picture of God, does it not? And what, you know, to have an a obscure picture of God. I don't know about you, dads in the room, but I was always terrified as a father. Like it or not, you're giving these young kids a picture of who God is. That's pretty frightening. And you want to be able to be that child who can, you know, beat your fist on your daddy's chest, but you also want to be loved and accepted, corrected when necessary. But we're getting an interesting picture of God that certainly today, love wins doesn't talk about these kind of things. Um, let's drop down to verse 17 of 3. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Boy, I've forgotten happiness, and I don't even know if God's going to come through. He's just laid it out. Now, um, let me give you five lessons, and we'll come back to some of the, the upswing of the book. But th- this is a book that requires... Uh, patience, but the lessons just fall off the page. I limited them to five. The first one, judgment of sin, is clearly attributed to God. This is unpopular, it's countercultural, and frankly, it's counter most Christian culture. Um, I have psychologist friends, and we have these discussions about shame and guilt, and I get so upset with them. Uh, that the, Alan Bloom said, psychologists are the sworn enemy of guilt. You're a victim. That's why you're feeling this way. Uh, and certainly, there's bad shame, right? We can shame people for the wrong reasons. But our society has gone so crazy the other direction. It's like, you know, sometimes a little shame and guilt go a long way. You're not going to hear that you know. It's you know, anywhere. I think a little guilt is good. If guilt and shame remind me and prevent me from going that direction again? Is that a good roadblock? I say it is. You may disagree. Go for it. I think a little guilt and shame go a long way. And it's got to be good. It's got to be godly. I think there is a godly guilt and shame. Don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid, guys. Don't let the world teach you theology. Come back again and again to this book. It's his word. It's his mind in print. It's unpopular as ever, but judgment is clearly attributed to God. So when things happen to you and me, and I get this question often in a hospital visitation, do you think God is judging me? That's a very common question when somebody has cancer or an illness that can't be diagnosed, and I always give the same answer. I say, that's a valid question you need to pray through, and it's just good spiritual discipline to do a chronic, where, where am I sinning, Lord? What am I, what am I blind to? What am I missing? And then confess those sins. Now, don't live there. Because why? We're fallen people in a fallen context. Bad things happen to all of us. Some of, you know, some of us are going to have cancer, ALS. You know, you're going to have a child that's going to go through medical challenges. That's just fallen people in a fallen culture. It's not always cause-effect that sin causes this. That's a, that's a lie. Sometimes God will use health and disappointments to get our attention. And that's a good calibration no matter what the cause was, but don't live there that this is happening because God's judging me. It may be He is, it may just be we're fallen people in a fallen world, but Lamentations clearly attributes this judgment is from God's hand because He warned and warned and warned. I can certainly tell you if you're living in sin and something bad happens, there's a likelihood there's a corollary. Not necessarily one-on-one, but there's a good likelihood. Okay. Secondly, perhaps we should be more surprised that he does not bring such punishment upon us. In chapter 3, verse 39, this is one of the verses that catches me every time I read through Lamentations. Why should any living mortal or man offer complaint in view of his sins? You know what you and I deserve? Hell. Period. None of us is any better than the next one. Uh, not original with me, but the ground at Calvary is level. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a general, uh, a powerful businessman or woman, successful in your, in your career and life, doesn't matter how important you are in the world's eyes, the ground at Calvary is level. It's remarkable when you look at your life and mine, that how merciful God is and we don't see it. If it was one-on-one, how long do you think you would live? Think <laughs> you can make it through the terrible twos? I wouldn't have made it past 16, that's for sure. <laughs> if it was, if God judged me one-to-one for the sins I did, I'd have been pounded flatter than a pancake a long time ago. His mercy endures forever. So when we sin, he's a patient father, just like hopefully we are as parents, right? We we give our kids leash to run, but Maybe rather than asking how or why, we should ask, why not me? I'm thankful. I'm grateful. And that's a good posture to come to your father. Thank God that he remembers mercy. Third, recognize that God can take our venting, but take care not to overstep. I don't know how to give you a definition for this. I'm sure some smarter uh, theologians, preachers might have, counselors might have a suggestion. I don't know this, but um, when when something happens to us and we complain against God, especially if we feel like you know our, our spouse left us, our parents abused us, uh, people were rude, we were fired unjustly, when bad things happen, it's hard to get over. You don't. Know, you go through. It's hard to work through those things, and we might withdraw from God, which is really a joke. It's like God's going to be upset because we withdraw from him. I'm not going to pray or read the Bible or hang out with other mature Christians anymore because this happened to me. That's just stupid. That's really childish. That's like a toddler who loses his or her toys and goes to the room and pouts. Hey, it's a break for mom in my view, you know, but in your worldview, I'm going to pull away from you because you don't perform for me. That's just childishness. On the other hand, if we're blaming God and playing the role of the victim our entire life, you have to ask the question, when are you going to grow up? It was true in my experience, and perhaps many of yours. Maturity is when you stop blaming the past, you own the present, and you plan the future. Right? You stop blaming your past. Things happen to people. They're unjust. We, we perhaps all have been a victim of some other person's sin. Stop blaming the past. Own your present. What are you going to do about it? and then plan your future. That's growing up. When you stop blaming your mom and dad, when you stop blaming somebody else, your ex, when you stop blaming fill in the blank, that's when you begin to grow up and own your own stuff. There will be consequences. Sometimes they're heavier than others. Sometimes he's very merciful in his consequences, isn't he? Fourth, God is not capricious. He's not malevolent. We can get this view, again, depending on how you were raised, perhaps, or a view that you've mosaic together, that God's vengeful, he's angry, he's knee-jerk, he's capricious, he does things pell-mell, he, throws, he has a tantrum or goes into a rage. It's not taught in Scripture. Nowhere is the character of God depicted that way in Old or New Testaments. Ezekiel 18.23 is one most of us know. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. God does not delight in the death of the ungodly. And finally, we would do well to choose to worship and wait, to choose to remember, to choose to sit alone and be silent. And this is where the glimpse of hope comes in. And this is where we go back to chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Remember my affliction, and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers, and is bowed down within me. Now notice the turning point of the book for for Jeremiah personally. This I recall, verse twenty one to mind. Therefore I have hope. He makes a choice. This I recall, to my mind. Therefore. I have hope. And this is the first time chesed, loving kindness, is injected in the story. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. If you have an ESV, steadfast. If you have NIV, I don't know what it is. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, and this is the one you know, for great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope. In verse 18, he would lost his hope from God. But in making a choice, a decision, this is the turning point of the lamentations, which is why it's the middle of the chiastic device. Even when my experience tells me otherwise, I'm going to choose to worship. I don't know about your experiences, but I don't think you're that much different than me. You and I have to not let our experience teach us anything about God. I mean, experiences can teach us, and experiences are important and helpful, but don't look to the horizontal experience to tell you who God is. What nonsense. Well, you know, God's always done this in my life. I think that's just an issue we need to grow up. Hindsight's twenty-twenty. This is the problem I have with, with charismatic theology. Not that I you know, want to be mean or unkind to them, but you, you can't look at experience and words from God when things don't work out and then somehow go back around and try and double explain what really happened. When God led you to this and told you, I was talking to a missionary friend this week, he called me. They were overseas, they're stateside now, and they're having a really hard time transitioning. And he was going on and on about, you know, when you and Cindy went to different ministries, did y'all ever have you know, disagreements and think you made a wrong decision? And I said, never. <laughs> of course the Senate never disagreed. Well, of course you do. Well, you know, this is this and this and this. I said, wait a minute, when are you going to turn the page? You're in a new place. It's going to take 18, 24 months to turn the corner. It is not going to be what you thought it was. That's why you're a leader. Because leaders go in and they make decisions and they make new friends and they work on things and they don't sit back like everybody else and watch life go by. Um, It's a choice to worship, it's a choice to sit and remain. It's a choice to be silent. Boy, in this busy culture with this stuff, we're never silent. We're never silent. It's information, information, information. Um, uh, I mean, this, this portion of 13, uh, chapter 3 is, is where we're attracted to, obviously. The Lord is my portion, it says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. The person who seeks Him is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. First time the word's used, if my math is correct, It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he, God, has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope, he brings it up again. Let him, the sinner, the penitent, give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion. And This is the second and last time according to his abundant hesed, his abundant loving kindness, steadfast love. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush them under his feet. All the prisoners of the land to deprive a man of justice, in the presence of the Most High to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Now, of these things the Lord does not approve. God is not capricious, he's not malevolent, and when this judgment happens, you've got to sit and wait. Sit and worship. Choose to worship. Choose to remember. Choose to sit alone and be silent. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Chad Cates.